welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Polina Kroik about her new book, Cultural Production and the Politics of Women's Work in American Literature and Film, which was published this year. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. This is a really interesting book. Um, At a time when I guess considerations of things like gender, class um, and cultural labour are are really at the forefront of both academic and and, and popular discussion, it it was really fascinating to see a a book that's that's come from a humanities perspective and in many ways is engaged with texts as as much as it's engaged with um, contemporary questions of things like cultural labour. And, and I'm fascinated to see where you kind of started this from. Uh, and I wonder if you, if you could say a bit about where the ideas behind the book came from and, and where it sort of fits into your your academic career and, and your thought more generally. Uh, sure, yeah. So I guess it's, it's kind of interesting um, in that maybe um, the ideas came before uh, all these questions uh, became so kind of popular and in the forefront of everyone's thoughts. So the the idea for the book really came uh, as I was working on my PhD, and um, I was actually about to go in a different direction. But um, I started I started my PhD program at the University of California, Irvine, kind of expecting to be in a really uh, professional environment, in an environment where. Um, I will just be like this intellectual and student. But actually, a lot of my time was taken up with teaching, which was um, kind of uh, regimented, kind of pro- proletariatized. Uh, so as I was thinking about modernism in my capacity as just a, a student, a graduate student, and as well as my experience as a, you know, teaching to, to pay for my t- tuition, essentially, um, and all these questions about gender and labor uh, came came to my mind, and kind of I began framing this project. Um, I think a key text that really influenced me uh, was uh, uh, Harry Braverman's, and I'm not going to say the title because I think I'll get it wrong, but Harry Braverman's book about uh, the proletariat proletarianization of intellectual work uh, and monopoly capital. Um, So as I was looking at um, the rise of modernism in the 1920s and at the same time uh, at this um, mass entrance of uh, women into white-collar professions, um, it really struck me that there there had to be some kind of a a connection, if, if not a correlation, but there had to be some kind of um, influence between these two processes. Uh, so that was really part of it. And um, actually, I had trouble, you know, getting people interested in this project. So it really began, you know, in uh, around 2008, around 2009. And I graduated in 2011. And I had uh, trouble getting people interested in this project. And it really, um, I was able to publish it uh, once the Me Too movement uh, made it into the news. So I actually was inspired by the Me Too movement to make a book proposal and uh, try to pitch it within that kind of new political climate. So I think it had, the book itself had a history that kind of paralleled um, the rising consciousness about work and about women's issues in 
the late uh, 2000s and, and the 2010s. Yeah, and you can see that actually with where the book starts, I guess, because it, you know the, the book begins with a consideration of, I guess, the kind of the figure or the idea of, uh, of the secretary, um, and in particular one secretary, which might be familiar to listeners, uh, Peggy and Madman, who you know has this kind of arc of, um, in some ways, telling what we might think of as a kind of liberal story um, of the transformation of gender roles in in the office and you know in, in, in advertising or, or creative industries. But also, you, you know, you've got a kind of a, a critical take, um, I guess, on that on that story as well. And it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about, um, I guess, the kind of uh, the changes of women's status in, in creative jobs um, before we start to, to think about how that comes up in, in terms of particular text. Yeah, so Peggy is a really uh, fascinating character. So I think probably most listeners are familiar with the show Mad Men and I don't have to, to say too much to contextualize it too much, but in the show... Um, which I think ran for something like eight seasons. So she enters this um, advertising agency in the 1950s as just a secretary. So and we really get the sense of what it was like to be a secretary in, 19, in the 1950s, which I think the show does a pretty good job uh, of just presenting it in, in a realistic way. Uh, so she was really subservient to her boss, to Don Draper, and all she did was basically uh, type type memos, type whatever needed to be typing, and she brought coffee, and she really had the idea that she had to take care of him and also maybe be a sexual object as well, although in the first uh, episode we see that she, unlike maybe other secretaries, she doesn't, she's not going to be that sexual object. Um, and the way the show frames it is that she begins as a secretary and then as the decade, so it's late 1950s, so we enter into the 60s, we get into the early 70s towards the end of the show. So she moves up in the corporate ladder. She makes it into the ranks of the copywriters who at the beginning of the show are just all male. And eventually she becomes an executive. So the show ends with... Uh, Peggy essentially taking Don Draper's chair and taking that um, uh, stereotypically masculine patriarchal role that Don Draper had at the beginning of the show. Um, so the show's argument is that as we transition from Fordism from the early part of the 20th century to neoliberalism, maybe at the beginning of neoliberalism, uh, gender roles in the workplace uh, changed dramatically. Um, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but my kind of as an introduction to, to part of my argument is that the story, I think the story is much more complex. So first of all, this, this figure of the secretary emerges much earlier. I think most of us are familiar with the secretary in the 1950s, but um the secretary really emerges in the 19-teens, 1920s, that figure of the, you know, the sex, sexy secretary or the sexy, the secretary who is just there to serve her male boss. Um, and I think it's it the structure that emerges at the time is much more trenchant than, than what the show tries to, to show us. Um, so I would say that even 
as women do take on these jobs and these roles that were traditionally male, um, there is still a structure in place where femininity in the workplace or the kind of the women's natural role in the workplace is in a, some sort of subservient position. So either a secretary, an assistant, and when I talk about uh, the cultural fields, it could be um, an editor or a screenwriter. So any any job where there isn't much autonomy and there isn't much uh, decision-making power. So all these jobs are essentially feminized. And then once women do take on masculine jobs or the jobs that used to be just occupied by men, they have to... Um, they have to adapt to them or they have to kind of act like men in, in certain ways. So I'm, I'm a bit critical of, of the, um, the story that the show tells about the transition from Fordism to neoliberalism or flexible accumulation. Um, no, and I'm not that interested in, in these just you know, theoretical debates about periodization within Marxism, but more uh, in terms of how um, how we view work today and our awareness of um, the extent to which things have changed and the extent to which things maybe some things have stayed the same uh, since even the early twentieth century. I mean, the, the other thing that layers onto this is the question of cultural hierarchy so if we have you know a kind of a a history of work or a history of um, capitalist modes of production and a history of gender we've also got a history of of cultural hierarchies and and in particular i guess uh, the opposition tension um, between modernism and, and mass culture and again you know because you're writing about the turn of the 20th century through um, I guess till today, but also through to the 1960s as, as well. You, you've got the importance of how how culture and cultural hierarchy changes, and it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about um, the role that uh, modernism plays in the book uh, and that question of how cultural hierarchy interacts with uh, work and gender. Yeah, so I think um, modernism changed cultural hierarchies in very significant ways. Uh, so in my view, uh, before the rise of modern, modernism, of course, there were cultural hierarchies, um, but they weren't as, as clearly defined um, in terms of the characteristics of the genre, I think, and, as well, and also in terms of gender. So I go into that in more detail in Chapter 2, where, where I look at uh, Edith Wharton's a trajectory from like very early 20th century into the 1920s. Um, so I think what happens with modernism, and I argue that it's an, at least in part a reaction to the feminization of clerical work and to just the entrance of women into um, kind of mind work, into work that involves uh, some, some intellectual, intellectual activity, um, is that modernism made high culture uh, equivalent with this um, level of intellectual sophistication and also it, it became involved with various institutions of legitimation. So if you think of maybe Henry James as a representative of high culture in the early 20th century, I think he's 
it's already also part of that trend towards modernism. Um, but he's not necessarily writing in a genre that might be different from um, authors that would be read more popularly. And there isn't a sense that he necessarily draws on something that would be taught at the university department. But when you get to T.S. Eliot and James Joyce, there is that um, really kind of scholarly component to, to the work. And um, I mean, I don't think that all of high culture is defined by that, but there is a significant layer of high culture that that is and maybe more importantly what it established is this tie between um, actual institutions that are not the publishing industry but are I would say specifically the university that um, both kind of provide the training and the stamp of legitimation for something to to be considered high culture um, so that go that kind of is, is a reaction both to really the explosion of mass mass culture and to the really um, the economic rewards that something that could be distributed widely in the 1920s garnered, um, but also just the presence, but just the fact that women could participate, that women who um, had a typewriter who had uh, maybe a high school or some college education, they could could potentially become writers and could uh, write something that maybe in the 19th century could have been considered high culture. So uh, modernism raises that bar so that a woman with a typewriter and especially a woman who has to rely on uh, very demanding work of being a secretary or one of those jobs uh, is unlikely to write the next Ulysses, um, and also in another way, as audiences, these these types of works really, I think, tended to exclude women as as audiences if women didn't have that uh, you know very high level of of education and also kind of this. Um, like the the training of the taste to be able to appreciate maybe the the most experimental and the most um, like uh, challenging works that were produced at the time. I mean, there's lots and lots of examples in the book of of how these um, historical processes and you know uh, aesthetic um, struggles play out, um, and maybe we'll we'll kind of dip in. Um, to, to several of them. But just as you were talking, it struck me that the second chapter, uh, which um, discusses e- Edith Wharton's uh, work, is, is a really good example um, of the development of both the idea of kind of writing or being an author as a profession that has a particular gendered character and modernist and, and, and mass culture. And, and I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear about how, how Wharton is, is a sort of um, a, a good example of these these two things. Yeah, so Wharton, uh, her development as a writer is really interesting uh, because she she did um, she, first of all she defined herself very explicitly as a professional author, and she she entered she became um, famous or became well known as an author just a little bit before the rise of modernism, so in the uh, first decade of the uh, 20th century. 
Um, and of course, she was closely tied. She had close ties to Henry James and was influenced by his idea of literary professionalism. So uh, when she first, when she began publishing her first work, and I believe maybe The House of Mirth was the first one that uh, really got her noticed. Um, those that modernist uh, sphere of production wasn't there yet. And so she saw herself as entering high culture by being published at what was then known as quality magazines, uh, like Scribner's, and by just publishing her book and seeing it to the bookstore uh, and having the approval of Henry James and a small circle of um, kind of literati of critics. And she felt that she was she she made it. She she had become a writer. She was a professional. She had this view of her career um, in the modern sense of kind of uh, a trajectory of development and of uh, an accumulation of work. Um, but then something happened. And I think what happened for her uh, is first that um, for various reasons, she felt like she had to uh, publish more and more for uh, for money. So she, it's it's not like she was poor, but she wanted to maintain a, this aristocratic lifestyle. And so she, a lot of her work became published, and maybe even almost from the very beginning, was published in these women's magazines uh, that paid really, really well. So I think maybe contemporary equivalent might be like selling something as a TV show uh, where you you pay you got paid really, really well. You could live on this money. You can maintain a very uh, um, a very good lifestyle. So, and then, you know, once she got got into this uh, um, structure of publishing with women's magazines, her work became identified with, with mass culture. Um, and I think it also, in reality, it, affected, it sometimes affected the quality of her work because she had to write pretty fast. She had to write in the serial form that would fit with the monthly uh, or weekly magazine publication. Um, and she watched my, uh, modernism rise, and we could see that uh, her initial reactions to modernism weren't negative. So, in fact, she adopted some... Uh, some elements that modernists also valued. So, for example, her work on architecture, rejection of the ornamental, that's very much in line with modernism. Um, however, uh, she, I think she saw that modernism really wasn't accepting her. Modernist critics, modernist authors were, weren't accepting her work as part of this new movement. Uh, she reacted fairly strongly, or I would say very strongly in these late novels that I, uh, I'm looking at, Hudson River Bracketed and The Gods Arrive. Um, she reacted strongly against modernism. Um, and we can see kind of these really uh, ugly aspects of the late Edith Wharton, where there's also quite a bit of racism, and there's also quite a bit of conservatism in relation to gender in, in these novels where modernism is satirized and a kind of older world of aesthetic and cultural values is being affirmed. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, race and, and, and racism um, and I guess, you know, kind of Wharton's um, slightly kind of standoffish relationship uh, with, with, with modernism. 
Um, and later on in the book, you, you consider um, how questions of race play out in, in Nella Larson's work um, because she was very much, you know, subject to the intersection of not just gender and, and class exclusions, but also race uh, exclusions from the sort of uh, emerging um, what you might think of as, I guess, American consumer society. And and how how do the two of them sort of, you know, how are they sort of similar and, and different? How um, are their examples kind of uh, differentiated by that um, racial line? Yeah, so uh, I haven't actually thought about comparing between them, so that's a very interesting question. But I'll start with just um, Nella Larson as really um, an important example of how Black women's experiences and their narrative is quite different from the the main narrative of the book, which does focus on white women's experiences. So, So for Black women... Um, the feminization of clerical work didn't really have that much of an effect on their economic status, on um, their social and sexual roles, because that work was largely not available to them. So uh, white offices uh, began to rely on women partly to exclude black men. So obviously they also uh, largely did not hire uh, black women, except maybe for something that's like a very much of a backroom type of job where black women wouldn't be seen. But um, clerical work wasn't widely available to black women. Uh, what was available were um, a, a set of what was called professions, and th- they were in fact professions such as nursing, teaching, um, librarianship, but they were very, they were not like. Um, male professions where you could have some leisure time, you have, uh, uh, you will be well paid, but they were very taxing professions. So, so Nella Larson, in fact, and this is something that people uh, don't always, I don't think, don't, don't always talk about, don't always know, is that before she became an author, she was a professional nurse and she was really um, a very was trained at a high level, had had a career where she had some standing, had some stability. Um, but that was a career where there was no room for, for writing. And she was able to transition to writing when she married, uh, a, I think it was a physicist, Eames, and she kind of switched jobs to librarianship and was able to work part-time. So she uh, she switched out of that very demanding career um, and had some some support to to be able to write. Um, and maybe one thing that does put her in line in with a lot of the other women I talk about is that in order to be accepted into these cultural circles of the Harlem Renaissance, she presented herself as. Uh, this bohemian modern girl, so so someone who's kind of influenced by the flapper figure, someone who um, doesn't emphasize the professional nature of her work or the laborious the laborious nature of writing, but goes to a lot of parties and um, just represents herself as this uh, sexually attractive feminine figure. Um, so maybe a, a big difference between her and Wharton there is that Wharton, in fact, rejected the flapper figure. So I think Wharton was quite a bit older in the 1920s, and uh, she just looked looked at this phenomena of the 
flapper or of the modern girl from outside and so it is a, a disempowering thing and as a negative thing uh, whereas Larson em- embraced it um, and in terms of kind of Larson's relation to uh, to the literary genres uh, so she maybe in a way that's similar to Wharton she also wrote primarily satires kind of social satires uh, about the black middle class milieu so that was something that made her very popular so her first or her only two novels Quicksand and Passing, um, mostly focus on the black bourgeoisie, so maybe in the way that most of Wharton's novel focus on uh, the white bourgeoisie and like a higher high bourgeoisie. Um, And she satirizes them, not just in terms of class, but in terms of race and and culture and in various ways. So these novels made her quite successful in the late 1920s, but then there was really a radical shift in the early 30s where uh, that kind of writing within a very small, the very small circle in Harlem that actually supported black, black women's writing, that kind of writing fell out of favor. Uh, people felt, uh, especially with the leadership of Richard Wright, that there was a need for more proletarian, more radical writing. And um, she really couldn't adapt to this new environment. So maybe, again, similar to Wharton, there is a sense that um, there is an inability to adapt to something new. Um, And for her, that was really tragic because not only did she not adapt to this new style, which I think, based at least on Quicksand, she had the ability to write in a more kind of realistic, gritty genre, but... Uh, she, for some reason, did not really did not want to part with the social satire. Um, and also she resisted just going back to work or uh, having some kind of other um, social presence apart from her modern modern girl persona. So she pretty much she had maybe some kind of a nervous breakdown and pretty much disappeared from the scene and she never. Um, never wrote again. She did go back to nursing and just uh, spend the rest of her life as as a nurse. Um, uh, so, so I think that kind of I mean it's it's a fairly I think stark <laughs> a difference between her and Wharton, but there are these uh, similarities in terms of their the genre in which they wrote and. Uh, their kind of lack of um, ability to uh, adapt to a very very rapid changes in in the culture um, and in the literary marketplace. I mean, the, already we've uh, sort of passed over lots and lots of stuff that's uh, that, that's in the book. Uh, you know, there's a, a long discussion of uh, Sinclair Lewis's work, for for example. But um, I'd maybe like to to kind of start to round up with a, a couple of um, later chapters. And so one is, and, and we mentioned this at the start, you know, the kind of coming of a new mode of cultural production, which is cinema. And then also, as, as you said, the relationship between things like universities, popular magazines and, and, and literary culture. And I guess one way in, into this is, is the idea of the film industry being kind of like similar or, or, or different um, than the story of, of, of Wharton and, and Larson. So you, you look at Anita Liu's um, role 
of being someone who was kind of you know, quite sort of powerful, um, had a lot of control and influence, I, I guess, in terms of um, drafting female characters um, on screen and, and in screenplays that were maybe, you know, kind of challenging or, or, or different. But then as modes of kind of reorganization happened because of the depression and changes in uh, things like censorship uh, in, in Hollywood, she effectively becomes, a, I guess, a kind of like, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on, on this, but, but I got the sense that she became almost kind of secretarial, you, you know, that she had this kind of, you know, formal creative role. And then you paint a picture of her doing lots of like kind of short-term projects being bought in to, you know, rewrite things very quickly, not having a, you know, a really kind of uh, detailed relationship with a, with a screenplay or, or whatever. Um, and that I found fascinating the kind of, uh, the story of how even where a woman was in a comparatively powerful position, changes in effectively modes of production marginalised her and, and changed their labour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Anita, Anita Lewis is a really fascinating figure, um, very talented. So uh, the the film industry was really a world unto itself and the way I, I structure the chapter is by looking at kind of different periods within um, 1930s, early early 1940s within the within the Hollywood studio system. Um, so, kind of one of the key things for for my argument about Anita Lewis is that um, yes, she she did have a lot of power in influencing the films, and we can see that in the kind of the early the early films that she worked on, are kind of up to the mid up to the mid 30s. Um, and these are, I mean, I, I recommend um, like a Red-Headed Woman, um, San Francisco. These are really, really interesting films. And um, so, so she did have a lot of influence, but I think part of the deal was that she accepted the fact that the, the screenwriter was a low-ranking position within the studio hierarchy. So the studios were... Um, Unequivocally, unequivocally hierarchical. Um, all the kind of famous writers like F. F. Scott Fitzgerald and Faulkner, who who went to Hollywood, I don't think they were prepared to work in that kind of environment where the screenwriter was given an assignment. They had to produce something that the director, the producer, the studio had would approve of, and then if they um, didn't approve of it or if they decided that they needed the script to be changed entirely, they had the last word. So the writer was no longer this creative genius that uh, modernism, literary modernism cultivated. So what allowed Anita Luce, I think, to be successful in that system is that she never uh, wanted or she never made the claim of being, of having this artistic autonomy. So she accepted the fact that the studio system worked in this hierarchical way, uh, but she kind of manipulated the situation so that she would have uh, a bit of control over the script. And I think her relationship with uh, the head producer at the time, Irving Talberg, really helped her because he was sympathetic to what she was doing. And so she was able to put in uh, a bit of that subversive stuff without uh, maybe the higher-ups even noticing it or without them really caring enough to, uh, to, to 
crash it or to get rid of it. Um, so there were kind of two stages of this. So there was the central producer system where Irving Talberg really had a lot, a lot of control within the studio, within MGM. And then there was the unit production system where there were different producers, but uh, Anita Luz was still able to work with the same producer, Irving Talberg. And so she could, she kept that um, maybe hidden creative control over the script within that second stage. So uh, what you were referring to where she really did became kind of like a secretary was this last stage where um, Louis Bemer took really kind of took over the studio. So they didn't, he didn't like it that that Talberg had so much control. And once Talberg died, he dismantled that system where producers had a lot of control. And so he was the one in charge um, and it had very kind of cheesy tastes in movies. It was very conservative about gender. Um, and based on my research, it was also kind of chaotic system where no one really knew what was going to happen. So um, at that stage, Anita Luce, she didn't seem to get that many projects because she was known for writing the, the more critical, satirical scripts. Um and so she would be brought in as a script doctor, someone who would had to fix a script to work as usually as comedy or in some other capacity of that sort. And we can see in these later movies like The Women and I Married an Angel, which are actually based on plays that are, um, are satires. But when, once they were made into movies, they just mainly affirm women's roles as uh, homemakers, as wives, and so on. And you you might see a little bit of that satire uh, in the body of the film, but within the narrative arc, that satire tends to disappear. So at the end, we just see them kind of, you know, the, the women characters returning to their hearth and home, um, or, you know, the ones who, who don't get, get punished for it. So we see that, that kind of conservatism being affirmed. And so, so yeah, as the mode of production changes, um, there is no longer a space for critical and um, satiric work that, that Anita Luce was, was known for. I mean, it, it sounds really strange to ask you a question about Sylvia Plath and, and the <laughs> idea of like a mode of production um, that that is very much, you know, not um, where we, we, we might usually kind of consider um, her work. But but I found that actually really fascinating. The sense of um, particularly the, the New Yorker um, as you know an, an important kind of literary magazine uh, relationship with you know kind of. Um, universities, academic hire, uh, hiring practices, aesthetic hierarchies, and, you know, an America that was increasingly not particularly interested in a, a kind of radical avant-garde. You know, you mentioned actually with um, Lou's later um, works that seem to be more conservative, more about, you know, women returning to the home and, and to family and stuff like this. So, so where does Plath um, kind of figure if we were to read her through um, a story about a particular moment of the the mode of cultural production in America. 
Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, um, I'll just say a little bit about class and Sylvia Plath. So Sylvia Plath, her work is usually read through uh, a psychological, psychoanalytic lens, which um, makes sense because she was influenced by uh, psychoanalysis. Her, her work is very, very emotional. Um, as she resp- responds to like the, the Oedipal idea. Uh, but in fact, for her, as we can see in, in her novel and some of her uh, fictions, well, some of the poetry, she did c- grow up in a lower middle class. Um, her mother, she, she and she was raised by mostly by her mother as a single parent, and her mother was a secretary, and she worked at, um, like, she taught secretarial cor- courses later on at Boston University. Um so Plath actually grew up with a very strong awareness of class because as a young writer, she aspired to uh, go to those, the best schools and to participate in, these, uh, in the cultural elite. But she was always aware that uh, money was, was an obstacle there. So she was a scholarship student at, at Smith and she had to constantly kind of rely on scholarships or and on patronage to to be able to even make it into um into the literary into the circles of literary production at at all um so the new yorker was very important to her and i think um, as i was kind of reviewing this chapter it struck me how how much um, the situation is similar with the new yorker still being this um this institution that can bestow a stamp of, of prestige and can really uh, make or, or break a literary career. And I mean, we still see that. Uh, so she, she, she kept submitting, she started submitting work to the New Yorker early and she kept submitting work there. Um, but yeah, so in addition to the prestige, um, it was also a, a, at the time of publication that paid really well. Uh, so for Plath, um, once she rejected college teaching and rejected the idea of, of following an academic career, uh, she really had to rely on um, payment for her work. And by the 1950s, the women's magazines, they were no longer quite as, as popular. They, didn't, they no longer paid quite as well, although she did, uh, you know, she did write for uh, Mademoiselle, which is a young women's magazine, and she did try like the Ladies' Home Journal, um, but uh, there were really this handful of, of magazines that that paid for literary work. Uh, so, so the New Yorker was was important in in that way as as well. Um, in terms of, I mean, the New Yorker it it began as a fairly, if uh, not to say an avant-garde, but as as a at least kind of a young and vibrant publication in the 1920s. And I think by the 1950s, it was a very conservative publication. I would say that that, that might still be true today. Um, so if she did eventually get some of her poetry published in The New Yorker, but you can see that this is a very um, conventional poetry. This isn't the, the poetry of Ariel, this is in Plague Daddy and Lady Lazarus. These are poems about uh, going to the seaside and, and things like that. So these are the kinds of poems that the New Yorker published. And um, later, I mean, after she died, 
it published a bunch of poems that I think it either rejected or, or planned to reject without, you know, without any kind of commentary. It was just like, <laughs> this is someone who died, so we're going to publish uh, a bunch of their poems. Um, so I'm not sure if I completely answered your question. No, no, that that was really interesting, particularly, I guess, uh, I mean, it's, it, talking about conservatism is, is always sort of, difficult isn't it with um literary uh institutions and, and thinking about them now but it i guess it returns us to um to something like mad men actually which as you mentioned you know has a seemingly kind of you know empowering feminist take but actually you know is quite a conservative story i guess and um you come back to peggy um in the conclusion to the book uh, but it struck me reading it that although you know there's the kind of obvious problem of post-feminism there's also quite an interesting question for the book about how you'd like it to be used and, and i guess maybe where you'd like the book to relate to that contemporary interest in um things like the gig economy questions of of, of gender in um the contemporary creative economy yeah so um just maybe to say a little bit more about Mad Men, and as you know as i was writing that conclusion, which I felt like it made sense to to use Madman, which bridges bridges the early twentieth century, or at least that period of Fordism that I'm interested in, and the contemporary world, uh, is that um, it actually brings brings up both the the parallels and the differences between the earlier twentieth century, let's say the nineteen fifties, which is where the show begins, um, and the late twentieth century. So we can still see, uh, and that's probably why the show was successful, because I think that's something that was purely nostalgic, uh, but kind of very distant, might not have had as much of a response. I think people related to the show um, partly because it also kind of reflected their own experiences. Uh, so, so we do. I mean, we see a lot of the same kind of sexism that appears on the show. We see in the um, in the late 20th and early 21st century. Um, what I did find interesting is that as the show progresses and as Peggy moves out of the secretarial pool and becomes um, a creative, becomes a copywriter and later like a kind of, has a kind of management position, the, the type of sexism that the show foregrounds is not the type of sexism that women were most likely to experience in the 1950s, which was, you know, just overt and a form of exclusion, a form of uh, sexual harassment that's very, very direct and kind of you don't have to think too much about whether whether it is or it isn't. But there are all these scenes where uh, Peggy is ex excluded from a meeting because it has this... Um, masculinist culture of like smoking pot and uh, like, uh, you know, cur cursing and things like that. Um, and there are several scenes like that. And they, they tend to be key scenes for Peggy where she manages to navigate the situation. She rises to the challenge. She's not intimidated by, uh, you know, this bro culture of the office. Um, and then she separates herself from this group of women who, uh, follow still follow traditional gender roles and traditional like secretarial trajectories, uh, and she basically shows that she can be one of the guys. Um, so the show, I think, this is also 
uh, where the shows post post feminism comes in, where we move or like a variety. I'm not sure if this is the the correct the exact correct term to use post feminism, but uh, it's a kind of conservatism to me because it is about an individual as opposed to a collective struggle. So, and I think this is at least prior to the Me Too, this was the way women were encouraged to deal with. with that kind of discrimination and harassment in in the workforce, which is uh, to really just uh, deal with it as an individual, find a way to to handle things so that your own career isn't hurt in the process, that you can advance on the corporate ladder. Um, And whatever, you know, critiquing or condemning or changing the culture isn't necessarily the object. Um, so that's kind of as far as, as Peggy and Mad Men. Um, I think as far as what I would like to see um, happen in terms of the gig economy, so I think that's like a slightly, I did have it in the same chapter, but I think it's a slightly different topic because with the gig economy, we have additional problems. So we have an additional probably level of isolation and, and individuation where you don't actually go into an office, right? You you have an app where you might do something as a freelancer. You might ha- be, you know, like an adjunct professor, like a lot of us here uh, are, where um, you don't have much of an interaction with, with your colleagues at all. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I would like to talk about kind of what this might mean for organizing and what I, I would like to see happen um, with organizing both in maybe more traditional workplaces, but definitely in contingent in contingent workplaces. Uh, so I think, first of all, organizing is really important. And with the history of secretarial work, uh, what's conspicuous is really the absence of organizing. So secretaries, they saw themselves as middle class. They didn't see themselves as being similar to like seamstresses in a um, in a sweatshop or someone working in a factory, even though a lot of the times the work was uh, very mechanized and very strenuous. So um, so management was able to convince them not to organize um, and just kind of, you know, work within the corporate structure. So organizing is very important. Uh, but I think also organizing for what? So we see I'm... Um, somewhat involved with organizing among among the adjuncts, among con- contingent faculty. And we do have, we've had a lot of success organizing into unions, maybe getting a bit of a raise, uh, getting health insurance, which is certainly important. Um, but there's been much less of a success in attaining anything like autonomy in terms of our work, in attaining anything like... Um, having creative control or having our work not be mechanized, not be proletariatized. Uh, so, so these are, I think, objectives that are really important. And I think my book, by looking at the early 20th century, you can see the consequences of uh, not fighting for these objectives. So if you don't fight for them, um, a lot of critical work is marginalized or doesn't get produced in the first place. And a lot of individuals, you know, creative individuals, if they belong to marginal groups, which today might not necessarily be just women, but might be uh, uh, 
racial minorities, might be cultural minorities, might be sexual minorities. So these individuals don't don't get to uh, to do to do creative work at all because the system um, is is really built in a way that excludes them. <laughs>